If we implemented those concepts of resiliency and overarching uh, wellness and whole being health, which is a thing that I love, if we'd implemented that at the front end, how many of those people maybe would have never, never come on to claim? This is Intelligent Rebellion. Hey, folks. Welcome to this episode of Intelligent Rebellion. I chat with a good friend of mine, John Mellors. Now, just so you know, John does not take a breath this entire podcast. So uh, strap yourself in for a ride. This episode, we actually speak a little bit about preventative models, prescriptive wellness programs, cause and correlation, a little bit about Aladdin and salutogenesis. As Will pointed out during the editing and mixing of this episode, I forgot to say hello to John at the top. So, hi, John. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, I know we've been talking about this for a really long time, um, and I really appreciate it. So if you want, for the people who don't know you, firstly, why don't they know you, John? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But do you want to just sort of give us a few sentences about, like, who you are and how you came to be? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Look, I'm John, obviously. I'm a allied health professional and, and an artist formerly known as, I suppose, an accredited exercise physiologist. I mean, much like yourself, Rhea, that is my background, but it feels almost a little fraudulent or deceptive to say I'm an exercise physiologist because my career has moved in so many different spaces. But I'm essentially, you know, I work in business and business leadership in terms of um, allied health and clinical service delivery um, and wellness and recovery service delivery coming from the perspective of an exercise physiologist, which I think is really powerful because although I have not seen clients for uh, five or six years now or four or five years, I don't know, I lose track of time, you know, you never lose those skills. And I think they um, have certainly informed the way that I approach business, the way that I approach client relations in the way that I approach um, people leadership as well. I've had this conversation many, many times, but I think for people that come from a background of allied health and a background of being a clinician, innately you, you have kind of the foundations to, to hopefully make a good business leader because you've got that empathy. You know, all clinicians start out with um, being empathetic by, yeah. by nature or by virtue, or if they don't, they, they should. Um, and also, you know, you're coming from a position of how do we help people? How do we help people on their journeys that's my favorite word at the moment and and with their lives and deliver a healthier more fulfilled life and I think that's we'll talk a lot about this today I'm, I'm sure but that's the the biggest thing for me is, is shifting that mindset from you know being a clinician which by virtue is helping someone after the fact mm-hmm. they're already injured they're already unwell to to how do we just help people live healthier lives you know dare I say it preventative but you know from that that front end aspect and and that's a very long answer to who is John but I <laughs> I'm a, I'm an accredited exercise physiologist. I'm a business operator, and uh, and I'm a husband and a father, and a uh, tragic Brisbane Broncos fanatic. Yeah, and one of those beard guys. Like, and beard guys, yeah, beard guy, massive beard guy, and massive. One of those beard guys. Beard guys so <laughs> I could. I'm not even going to go there. So I think it's interesting because anyone, you know, sort of as the episodes will go along, it's such a thread that people will introduce themselves as, I just wanted to help people. Um, And that's what connects all of us um, ultimately. And it's a challenge of how do we do that properly given the world that we sort of live in and have to operate in as well. And look, this is called the Intelligent Rebellion. So I have to ask, and I ask everybody, very first question, what has been your most recent personal rebellion? And it could be work or home. What have you been naughty with recently? I'm going to give it a two-pronged, and I promise it's only one answer. Rhea, I've recently um, changed roles and and changed organisations, and and that sounds like maybe not such a big thing, but um, for me it was was a monumental thing, Uh, a really difficult decision, but also a big, big change in my life, and that's because I had so much love and passion for what I was doing before and the organisation I was working with and real um, a sense of job satisfaction that I know I was privileged to have. Um, I make up statistics all the time, which is great, what are they saying? 99, 99% of stats are made up. But I think I was probably in the you know top 1% of people that have the level of job satisfaction. And I mean that genuinely. To move into something different was, was, um, was yeah, uh, rebellious for me, but also <laughs> really 
challenging. It was definitely a professional decision and where do I want to be in my career and what I want to achieve and, and impacting lives. But it was also a, a personal decision, you know, and that was about being a, a better, more more present um, dad and, and husband. My, my kids are at those ages now where they're very, very astutely aware of dad and his work. And it's not that, mm-hmm. you know, my previous um, employer asked more of me or, or anything like that. It was absolutely self-created, 100%. But when you're stuck in that cycle of, of working and working and um, and your emotional energy where they shouldn't sometimes you need a reset and it needed um, for me to, to to sort of do that thing they do on movies where someone lies down and comes out and has that out of body experience and looks down sliding doors moment yeah, yeah and just goes how do, how do I change this and, and and for me it was a bit of a reset and um, different environment different people different challenge and I thought maybe at the same time I could try and um, reset things at, at at home and that's not that things weren't good you know I wanted to reset those emotional energies and and be a really really present dad for my kids and it's not just about physical presence and this is what I had to really learn um it's about that um emotional and and I guess cognitive presence you know I'd quite often be at home um if not traveling and so forth I'd quite often be at home but 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 maybe thinking about something else and 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 that was starting to gnaw away at me so my recent rebellion was uh was uh was to change job roles which was a big thing for me and at the same time um to have a bit of a reset about um, I, I despise the term work-life balance because... Oh, me too. Oh, don't even get me started. There's no such thing. Like, that's just bullshit. Like, there's no work-life balance. It's either you do work or you do life and you do those two separately and make a choice as to what you're going to do well at any one time. A hundred percent. And I think as well, the thing with work-life balance, it implies by nature of the phraseology it implies that the two things are disconnected and you're either working or you're you're doing personal stuff and for me maybe it's because I love my work I I don't know mate you know I don't have a a separation line between John the non-work guy and John the work guy for me I'm just John and so that concept of separating the thing I'm also a very very personal person and anybody that knows me will know that I'm friends with a lot of people I work with and I make those or try to make those connections because I like people but um yeah I think that term implies that you're doing one or you're doing the other and for me sometimes I'm doing a bit of everything and and I think that's you're sort of trying to smush everything um together and I hear you because you know I've got a couple of young kids as well and that idea of well I really enjoy my work and it's meaningful to me, but I'm also a mom or I'm also a parent. And is that more important to me than my work is? Or is my work more important to me than my family is? And sometimes you make those decisions where you sit back and reflect back and say, I made a decision that essentially said that my work was more important than my family. Yeah. Um, it's and, super- and it's not until you said, until, until you sort of, out of body experience yourself and go, oh yeah, but that's the challenge of being a human, right? How do you find that? Well, yeah, dare we say balance? A hundred percent. It's something, you know, again, I'm going to be quite vulnerable. I said before, I'm a personal person. I'm also, you know, quite open and in the right um, settings. Let's and, be um, courageously vulnerable. This let's is be what courageously this vulnerable. Is about no, I love it. It's- let's share. <laughs> no, I'm happy to. It's um, it's important. You know, it helps people to understand um, you and, and your psyche. For myself, I've been working with a business coach over the last sort of 15 or 16 months. She's been um, incredible. Her name is Claire. And something she's um, really worked with me on is um, how to attenuate that that guilt around those feelings mm-hmm. and how to, how to disassociate with the feeling or the experience, i.e., instead of saying yeah, I'm guilty or you know because you're you're working a lot or because you're not getting that inverted commas balance right, it's disassociating with that feeling. So I am feeling guilt, so that you can try and contextualise it, and then yeah. as soon as you contextualise it and separate it from oneself, you're able maybe to better process it and better understand it. I'm a ruminator. I'm a ruminator on a ruminator on a ruminator. So I think about things all the time. I. Yeah. I Brain ticks at a million miles an hour. I'm always analysing a situation or analysing a response or overthinking something. And, and so to be able to disassociate from all of that and just say, what's going on here? And maybe how could I have done that better? Or how could I have processed that better? Or how could we have done that differently is, is really powerful, I think. Yeah, Yeah, and, and to, to your point of how do you sort of disassociate yourself from certain things, um, you've probably seen him around, but um, Dr Adam Frazier, mm. 
he wrote that book, um, The Third Space, which actually speaks about the how do you go from being a work person, like work me, and then you become home me, but there's a really blurry line between the two. And he's, um, his book, The Third Space, talks about having that space in between work and then you, you kind of switch out and you take that mental note to say, okay, now I am disassociating from my work and I'm now the mom or the parent or the dad. And, and it's, it's just a brilliant process that he does. So um, yeah, Dr. Adam Fraser, who I think was actually, he actually is an exercise physiologist by profession, I think. So well, I, 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 I haven't read it. Sorry, Adam, if I'm wrong about that. But um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and kudos to Adam because um, he was actually, and I, I am biased here, um, because Adam actually gave me one of my very first jobs within healthcare and, and rehab. And so he took a punt on, on this, you know, 22-year-old kid. And, and here I am, you know what I mean? Right. But yeah, I'll, I'll flick you that stuff. And we'll stick all that stuff in the show notes as well um, for anybody who's interested in, in right. Adam's work, which is just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, and I think you've touched upon sort of a little bit of your history and, and sort of how you, how you are where you are now and that change that you had recently, um, John. Mm-hmm. Let's take it back to your healthcare origin story. Like, why did you decide, oh, yeah, like, did you decide I'm going to be an EP? You know me, Rare, and you know oh, I can't tell a story in a short period of time, but, I'm, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll sort of do my best. I, I grew up in... Um, Southeast Queensland on, on the sunny Gold Coast when it was still half a million people and finishing up in, in high school I, I definitely had an interest in, in healthcare and was exploring those options but I was one of those guys who, who was also receptive to ideas and um, we had a guy come in in must have been grade 11 or whatever from um, the military and, um, and did a bit of a, a presentation on the Defence Force Academy down there in Canberra and, and what a career in the military can look like just resonated with me so um, I'd been planning to, to jump into a healthcare career that had been my direction but I ended up joining the Defence Force Academy and, and heading down to our nation's capital for a couple of years and um, and I studied at UNSW at, at ADFA down there and I studied a, a Bachelor of Advanced Science majoring in Oceanography which is, um, you know, don't, don't ask me to remember any of it because um, it's not there but I was interested in, in, in that aspect and, and what um, a career might look like there and obviously we were looking at, um, you know, people search and rescues and as I went through that um, period of, of time in Canberra over a couple of years I, I, I realised that it wasn't um, for me maybe because I'm a rebel. Uh, I like to uh, I like to uh, partake in rebellion, but um, and I was also going through my own um, recovery and rehabilitation um, journeys. I had some issues and some injuries playing playing footy and um, and some significant ones, and I'd had some surgeries that hadn't gone uh, so well actually, and and that had really led me into to changing what I was doing in terms of my physical activity. I'd grown up playing rugby league and, and that had been um, a big part of, of my life. And to not be able to do that, I had to find other avenues to channel my energy and also to, to keep myself physically active and, and engaged and for um, optimizing my mental health. And so I really went through that recovery process, which gave me a great interest again in in allied health, of, of course. And I know that's a cliche because a lot of people, that's how it how it connects, but... Uh... That's how it starts. I mean, the more, you and I speak to probably thousands of people a year. I think that's probably not at all an overestimation of the number of people that we speak with um, or engage with every year. And the more people I talk to in healthcare, it is, it's their origin story is almost identical. It's, I want to help people, or I went through something and went, oh, wow, that's kind of really cool. People in healthcare are really good people at heart, and they feel like healthcare is the place for them. It's just, it just makes sense. And, and I know you and I had hours and hours and hours of chats about um, the healthcare system. I've watched you over the many years we've known each other, both sort of professionally and personally, create this business model in a, in a healthcare setting which just really cares about the humans in that business. Like the center of everything that you've done in the way that I've seen it has always been about what is good for the humans in this business first, and then you figure out the, hey, we've got to make money by the way. And I know you've grappled with that and a lot of people grapple with that balance. But what are the problems that I'm seeing in industry is people who are making decisions based on profit only. Or profit first. So there's no continuity of care. It's kind of like we see those 52 sessions of physio or 100 sessions of exercise physiology. I mean, I'm not picking on only one allied yeah. health. We're all responsible here. I'm wondering, sort of on that line, what is it that irks you about healthcare right now? 
Like mm. what just really gives you the shits, particularly I know your space is very personal injury and compensation, but you're kind of moving sort of to the sidelines of that. What is really annoying you right now in healthcare? Uh, lots. Um, lots. <laughs> Pick one. <laughs> I think to what you said before, Ria, but there's a real paradox overarchingly in healthcare and particularly allied healthcare, and I'll focus in on allied healthcare. There's a real paradox there in that, and I accept some spaces are, are a little different in terms of um, disability and such, but essentially the professional, the clinician, is there to make themselves redundant. And, and that as a service provider in a services industry is it, a really significant challenge because if, if your job is to make yourself redundant, then how do you create future sales or how do you create future productivity and how do you ultimately run, like you said, a sustainable business model into perpetuity? So it becomes about those two battles and they are a battle. They are a battle in terms of your morals and your ethics, but they're also a battle in terms of how you create viable business structure. And, and it's mm -hmm. essentially how do we stay true to that? How do we empower individuals on their healthcare journey, which means essentially, and it's a, it's a, it's a, crap and cliche analogy but I make up analogies all the time and we'll run with it you know it's I've got a tool belt but I'm here to show you how to do the job not to do it for you you know it's the tools yeah. and the tool belt type thing how do we do that and stay true to that and you know taper ourselves away from needing to involve ourselves in someone's care and give them the tools to self-guide their healthcare and their rehabilitation or their recovery or just promote their health into the future whilst also running viable business and I have theories around that, but th that's the, the significant challenge. So so what irks me that the, the most is, is probably, and I'm going to give a few answers, but that's okay. Um, let me. That's totally um, cool. Shoot. It's, it's that we probably see that a lot of the time we don't get that balance right. And I think people don't plan mm -hmm. it out and they fall too far one way or the other. They're so client-centric that maybe they're, they're not able to run viable business and that sustainability is not there, which creates stressors for, for staff members and whatever. Or, 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 or like you said, they're comes about a, a clear um, drive towards um, business and at the expense of, of all else. And you and you end up with unsatisfied and disconnected and disenfranchised clinicians, which is not good for, for anybody. So one of my major issues is that we probably don't address and, and get that balance right. And we see significant, significant over-servicing. It's a systemic issue. Yeah. And often it's not an intentional one. People don't realise maybe that, that it's being done, but but it is. And what we're doing is is probably disempowering human beings who, who have a lot of potential to, to be able to help themselves. I think the second thing that probably really just irks me is the way we frame clinicians' positions in people's recovery journeys. And I'm, of course, talking about people that have fallen on injury or, or, or are unwell or, you know, going through a, a condition or a diagnosis. We, re we really frame it from a position of importance. I'm a clinician. I've done stuff. I'm, oh, here to, yes. I'm here to help you and whatever. And often we as the clinicians don't know. We're evidence-informed, sure. But often, and here's the secret about it, it, re it really is just trying to find what resonates with the individual and what works. And that position of importance and need to almost justify one's existence and, and one's um, credibilities is is, is a challenge. So we see a lot of over-servicing, a lot of disconnect between the individual and the person who's assisting them. So then the individual ends up in this position when it's, I'm going to Rhea to help me get better, or I'm going to John to get, help me get better, as opposed to I'm going to Rhea or, or to John to help me to give me the tools to get myself better. Um, yeah. And I find that Greatly frustrating. I'm going to throw one more thing in. We always think rehabilitation, rehabilitation, rehabilitation. We think after the fact, after the fact, and that's the way the entire, and we're going to go off tangent here, but that system is set up to diagnose, to put in a box, and then to go through the hierarchy of clinical services. Are you medicated? Have you done this? Have you seen this specialist? Have you done this healthcare? And it's thought about so siloed and so rigidly, but mostly just so reactively and so from a rehabilitative yep. perspective. But if we can take all those principles, are you doing this healthcare? Are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Are you exercising? Are you, are you, are you mindful? And if we can take all those principles, rewind the clock back to before the person was injured or unwell and apply the same things, would we have potentially not been able to get there? And in the instance of most atraumatic issues, then the answer is maybe yes. So Maybe, yeah. And I think that's the hardest part is I was having this discussion with somebody about, well, why don't we spend as much money on prevention as we do on reaction? It's a commercial answer. It's kind of like we know how much money it costs to rehabilitate somebody or, you know, we know how much money it costs for services after the fact and to cure someone, to heal someone, but we don't know how much money could be saved if somebody was healthy. A billion percent, a billion percent. It's trying to find... 
Yeah. Yeah. How do you how do you go? Okay. Well, my very specific intervention stopped this person from going to the hospital because ultimately we all die from a lack of breath. And I think the question there is, what causes our lack of breath and what stops our heart from beating, right? And so we don't know if we exercise. I mean, you hear all these people saying, "Oh, yeah, but oh, that guy died on the football field and he was forty-five years old." all that exercise that he did, what a waste, all that prevention stuff, oh, what a waste. But I look at it from a very different perspective as to you look at lifespan versus health span, right? And the way I look at that is basically to say, okay, so guy who was 42 years old died on the football field. So up until the day he died on the football field, he, was, he could live his life at 100%, mm. right? He was doing everything that he wanted to do at 100%. So his health span was 100%. As opposed to you've got a 100-year-old guy, you know, someone's like, oh, my granddad smoked and drank and for all his life. But, you know, he could have lived to 100. But from the time that he was 80 to maybe to the time he was 100, what was his life like? Yeah. You know, and, and, and so the question there is, so then you could actually equate his health span to be maybe only 80%. So he may have lived longer, but he didn't really live longer if, if that makes oh, sense. it makes amazing sense i think there's two things that that sort of prompts in terms of thought processes for for me mm. you talked about the commercial aspect and and that is at scale right and it's absolutely absolutely correct it's playing with two finite resources which is money and time you know because mm -hmm. if you're thinking about and this is as relevant to an individual making a decision about investment in their healthcare as it might be for you know a large corporation deciding on whether to invest in a, in a in a wellness program or what have you. So for an individual making a decision at that scale, am I going to invest in this gym membership or am I going to invest in you know this particular type of food or whatever it may be? You're making a decision that's based around probably a commercial aspect and also mm -hmm. a time aspect. You know, what's my time invested and am I going to get a return on that investment and what does that return look like? And that's a complex layered decision-making process. But I think that's where I want to strip it back, right? I want to strip it back and flip this whole thing on its head to say, you know what? What's the human decision here? Yeah. The human decision here is we know, you know, if you put wellness programs, you look after your people, then they're going to be healthier, right? And, and they're going to be more productive. Now, we can't guarantee to you that if you put this person through my, you know, wellness program, that they're not going to be injured that they're not going to get unhealthy. But that's the guarantee that I feel like corporations want is the return of investment. How much money am I going to save if I spend $100,000 on a wellness program? Unfortunately, I don't know because I can't guarantee that that person is not going to get unwell. 100%. You've also brought up a concept that I am, and you know I'm obsessed with a series of concepts that I just flag back to all the time, but I'm obsessed with the concept of causation correlation, and it is one that mm -hmm. we distort all the time in <laughs> every aspect of life. We distort causation correlation. Unless you're in scientific environment and scientific um, standards and you're driving control groups and blah, 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 blah. it's very, very hard. You need to information you need some context you need some understanding you need some knowledge you need some evaluative processes to really truly frame up an opinion around some whether something is contributing and whether something is positive or whether it's just correlative because there's so many <laughs> examples of where you're able to marry two sets of data or marry an outcome and say that did or that didn't influence this but when you unpack it all it's really hard to get that causation correlation Again, you know, I sort of, that's why I go back to the, the basic human intuition of it's like causation, correlation, but I can just feel that this is the right thing to do. And most often the right thing to do is probably going to come out on the back end as having the return on investment, be it financial, be it time. I'm not. Yes. It's my yeah. opinion that if you take things back to what's the right thing, what's the altruistic thing to do, but also what your intuition and your instinct probably tells you. More often than not, I believe, and maybe it's because I'm an eternal optimist, but I, I do I do believe that that'll end up being the right decision in all aspects. Yeah. Yeah. I think someone like yourself and someone like me and people that we sort of know and are, are very similar to us, we've kind of proven that point. I haven't done a scientific analysis on everything that I do, but I feel like I've figured out a way to bring that humanity to the work that I do and still be able to meet my basic survival needs and run a, a profitable business. It's the, it's, the good, it's the good human test. I think um, 
Talking about how you balance conflicting interests to make a strong decision where you maybe don't have a significant time frame or aren't able to go through significant evaluative or analytical processes around return on investment, I tried to strip it back to, to always three basic things. Is this going to augment and improve our service delivery? Is it going to deliver a better outcome for our clients? That's, that's the first question. Is it going to make our service delivery better? Is it going to make the, our product better? And is it going to um, achieve a better outcome for the investors in our product, which are our clients? Um, the second outcome is, is it going to be good for our culture? Is it going to make our team members happier, more content, more job satisfied, more self-efficacious, more driven to want to work with their clients? Are they going to feel empowered in their day-to-day role, et cetera? So, and then the third thing is, is it a smart business decision? And that ultimately means, is it going to allow us to run viable business, profitable business and blah, blah, blah. The reality is those three things are not silos. Yeah. It's much like the work-life balance that we talked about before. You can't go, <laughs> yeah. it's not binary. You can't go one's here, takes away from one here. You've got to make a decision often on the fly that balances all three of those things and goes, okay, it might cost us a little bit of money because we might have to invest in this, but then that's going to mean less absenteeism, higher productivity, higher staff engagement. I link it back to what we said before. I think more often than not, and particularly for good leaders or people that are, you know, centrally good humans, yeah. and particularly where intelligence or experience comes into it, gut, gut instinct and gut feel will drive you a lot of the way. To your point, this is, you know, what we're trying to do here in all these conversations I'm having is to say, I don't fucking know what the answer is. <laughs> I'll be the first one to put my hand up and go, I have no idea what the answer is. Um, I'm going to leave that to somebody else, but let's ask the questions. Let's get people thinking about everything. And and I want to, I want to sort of lean into this because your LinkedIn bio sort of as it stands now talks about salutogenesis. (laughs) I I always get that mixed up in my brain and coming out of my mouth as well. So um, John, I mean, you use such big words. Like I'm such like English is my second language. Can I just put that out there? But saluted Genesis, like I read it and went like, what the F is that? Straight to Google. I'm just going to look into this. But you know what? Tell me, tell, tell me what it is. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm definitely verbose. That's, uh, that's the first thing. And, and, uh, <laughs> wait, wait, I'm just going to go Google verbose. <laughs> I'm a bit of a verbal boy. I, ge- I genuinely love words. People can connect with a word because it has a certain, you know, way of being structured or is in a certain context or whatever. Maybe that prompts some interest if they're not familiar to, with the word to look into it. And so often placed with things like my LinkedIn bio, it's by design. It's to create interest and to create intrigue. And this is another concept that I'm obsessed with, which is that gamut of intrigue and curiosity to judgment. So instead of, oh, he uses big words because he's a wanker. <laughs> Instead of using big words, why? Well, it's by design. It's to create a bit of intrigue because it's not a regularly used word. It's not a word that most people in, in day-to-day society be overly familiar with. And maybe they look into it and they go, that's pretty cool. And maybe they look into something else. To answer the, the question, it's actually a, a concept that um, emanates from sociology and actually um, studying people, looking at Holocaust survivors and, and, and researching in that space and yeah, sociological yeah. concepts. And it's transitioned over to and transposed over to, to health, as so many words do. Look, in a nutshell, I'm not the best person to provide the definition, but it's, it's providing an approach to health that looks at how do we be um, more proactive promote and maintain physical and, and mental well-being rather than looking at aspects of disease that's that's the bottom line which kind of touches on what we spoke about before which is we're always rehabilitative how do we shift the landscape to be prehabilitative so the concept of salutogenesis looks at just that how do we promote and maintain physical and mental well-being rather than disease and it looks particularly at the resiliency and the coping mechanisms of the individual and that really really resonates with me because when we're saying instead of uh, focusing on disease and focusing on rehabilitation, how do we promote physical and mental well-being that allows people to live perhaps healthier lives and that looks at the foundations of that at an individual's coping mechanisms, their Mm -hmm. self-efficacy, their empowerment to preserve health, even withstanding all the stressors that go on in our daily life. And that's the key. And I mentioned... Mm -hmm 
how have we lived over the last 18 months? It's been incredibly stressful. And, you know, looking at all these things, but even for people, and we link it back because we've got to get flow through in our conversation to talking about how people are making decisions on their own healthcare and when to invest time and money, that is stressful because life is stressful because there's a whole lot of shit going on. So <laughs> yeah. um, that's why yeah. I, and you can hear it in my voice, I, Oh, yeah, can I'm just I... going to stop you there. If um, I'm actually watching John on Zoom and he's like jumping around, like it's, it's, it's really quite impressive to see. Like, like you live and breathe this stuff. We're looking at it from a we want to keep people healthy and happy and all that type of stuff. But we're we we work in a system where people have had a trauma, yeah, and are now at a point where they've had injuries, whether psychological or physical. Give me an example of how the concept of salutogenesis comes into that. You know, in regards to, to the space that, that that we work in, Rhea, you know, we've, we've spoken so much in recent times about biopsychosocial, and I say we, you know, the industry, about yeah. what is biopsychosocial rehabilitation, what does it look like? And again, in regards to that and even the way that we apply it with personal injury recovery, we look at it and then we appraise and we end up looking at the yellow flags and the psychosocial complexities and the orange flags and this is going on and this is happening and then we start looking at that and is there an intervention here and is there an intervention here? Rip all that apart. Think about your and I'm going to propose a hypothetical here, so go with me. Yeah. Think about your own clients that you're working with at the moment. Mm-hmm. Think about them all and think about how many are there that we would um, define as or the system would define as a complex psychosocial complexities, layers, barriers, all these terms that we use in personal injury rhetoric, right? Think about that. And then if I asked you the question, for those individuals, how many have a deep understanding of their health? How many have a deep understanding of wellness? And how many are on a positive path at the latter stages of behavioural change to adopting healthy behaviours? And how many have a really strong, and I'm going to use the word, how many have a really strong resiliency um, and if I asked you that question and again I'm not going to be um, dismissive or, 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 or assume about your clients but I'm, I'm going to guess it's not not too many of them not too many of them yeah you assumed correctly right so then we go through this process of saying well you've got these psychosocial barriers now you need to engage with a psychologist or you need to engage with this program or you need to do this or we need to handle your recovery differently or we need to throw you over to a different claims manager or whatever I wonder sometimes and this is never going to be achievable because you know we spoke about it before before it's difficult to invest at the front end when you don't know what impact it's going to happen mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. but how many of those people if we'd taken them yonder you know years gone by or in their you know teenage years in their in their formative years or even as children in their curriculum and taught them deeply and sincerely concepts of health yeah. of wellness of resiliency of being physically active of sleeping well of eating well and i'm talking two things Rhea. i'm talking will and skill so how do we how do we um you know motivate people how do we drive intrinsic motivation and empowerment but also how do we show them the way hey here's a way that you can eat here's a cool diet hey here's how you exercise and oh that's meaningful for you because your significant other cycles or whatever whatever right how do we do all of that and it's not it's not just about eating and, 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 and exercise don't don't get me wrong i just know about those spaces exercise in particular yeah. but if we implemented those concepts of resiliency and overarching uh, wellness and whole being health which is a yeah. love if we'd implemented that at the front end how many of those people maybe would have never never come on to claim particularly if it's a traumatic and what have you yeah or, or more pertinently to the point would have never got to the stage where they're months years into a claims process where it's just a mess and I think the answer honestly and sincerely and I firmly believe this the answer has to be a very high percentage if we'd invested the time over years yeah we're, we're talking generational yeah I mean we're talking about generational things and I think you know as I said we've I've been having these conversations for the last not just the last 10 minutes but the last 10 years yeah. and, and it's kind of like there, there are all these amazing concepts out there people doing really great things but there's just not a swell of support for it at this stage. And, and that's, again, you know, all those reasons that we've spoken about as well. So, so let me be this for you. I am the genie in Aladdin. I'm blue. And I've gone, hey, John, guess what? You get three wishes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not about what, you, what can happen and what's realistic. Let's just put that aside for now. Give me your yeah. utopian healthcare system. 
<laughs> oh goodness me! Come on, I know that, is, that is a really, really difficult question. Look, I think I think you can't. Um, I think you can't silo systems. So Listen to your gut. What does your gut say? My gut tells me you, you cannot um, consider things myopically. You have to consider things as interconnected, and and it's not just about the healthcare system. It's about society. It's about life. So for me, that starts and stops with education, right? Yeah. If you can get in at the foundation. And my wife's a, a primary school teacher, so I <laughs> pick her brain a lot around, you know, not only our, our kids, <laughs> but, but, you know, the kids that, that she works with. And I think it's it's sad and it's um, erroneous that we don't spend more time at, at school level. And there's some great programs out there now and things are shifting, but we run kids through education and through whatever, 12, 13 years or whatever we do of schooling, and, and we don't really teach them concepts about wellbeing and health. So, um, you know, there are things, of course, disease and conditions and what have you that are going to be unavoidable. Don't, 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 don't yeah. what we're talking about when we talk about healthcare, you know, but there is so much that's avoidable. And I, I think the, the first wish I'd have would be in terms of the education, the system's coming through which is true prevention mm-hmm. could we do more with our kids and could we you know we try and do our best as parents and you know we're obviously both parents but could we do more with the kids of our generation or the next generation to help teach them about hey there's this big gnarly stuff out there this is going to be stressful this is going to happen in your life you're going to have you know you're going to have trauma you're going to have sadness you're going to have this and this and this here's some things that that maybe you can do to live a, a better a better more complete life and and that are perhaps going to give you the tools to be able to work through that shitty stuff when it does yeah. happen and it just links back to, to state of wellness and 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 an ability to, to to cope with with things and 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 for more and the, the the first and foremost wish genie would be uh, <laughs> we've watched Aladdin lots in our house lately. Uh, You'll never have a friend like me. Love Will Smith as genie. He's amazing. Oh, you're going uh, the but- Will Smith version? Come on, mate. No, it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> we, we like the OG too. We like the OG too. But um, but um, yeah, it would be um. At, at the foundation, which which is education, which is children, yeah. generational. How do we teach them these concepts of health? And the kids come out knowing about, you know, all these these things about how to be more mindful, about how to be more societally engaged. So we've so we've lost them as kids, right? So we're like, all right, yeah. we missed that boat. Oops, shit, we fucked that up. Yeah. I mean, it feels like that same model works across any age group, right? It 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 sounds like to me you're saying just a lot more conversation. And a lot more education. Yeah, I think we need to. I mean, we've got like too many health professionals. That's that's the first thing. So it's a, it's a massive, massive, massive societal issue because most people think about injury and illness very with a very external locus of control. Oh well, I'm going to go connect with people and I want a silver bullet. I want a silver bullet. You know, mm-hmm. and in some instances and with some disease and conditions, that's appropriate. But with most of what we see, and this is contextual, rare. You know, when we're talking mental health, when we're talking chronic pain, when we're talking these aspects, you know, people still want to externalize that locus of control, and 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 that's often the, the root cause of the issue so i'm going to give you a second answer because yeah education is, is of course very utopian and it links back really nicely we've almost rounded this conversation unintentionally really, really well which is um the art of a good conversation i suppose but um it links back to to, to, to workplaces for mine because the vast majority of people have an employer right and the vast majority of people spend a lot of time at their workplace not everybody right but everybody at some point in their life probably spends a significant portion of time at work so whatever industry you're in is there an opportunity and there's small business and whatever but a lot of australians work in medium or, or large size businesses is there the opportunity for workplaces and employers to do more and yeah. i am 100 certain that employers will wake up to that massively over the next 12 24 months as they see uh the secondary impacts of the pandemic and we start to go through the next six months nine months 12 months and we really see the impacts here when we see the ill mental health and what's going to transpire as a secondary and, and a tertiary and beyond, you know, there's an opportunity for employers to step up to the mantle and do more for their workplaces. Yeah, yeah and that's an interesting because I've been playing with this concept recently of um, something called workism. So work-ism. workism, W-O-R-K-I-S-M. Okay. Um, again, I'm no expert in it. I've, I've, it's kind of the way that I've always felt about work in that my work, and again, we're going to circle back to where you started about the whole work-life balance and like self-worth and identity. Workism is when somebody's self-identity and self-worth, their, their work is a centerpiece of that, where they are nothing else but their XX job title. Mm-hmm. Yes, employers definitely will start to see these problems. But for me, I go back to accountability of the person. And I had a thought when you were talking there about there's so many healthcare professionals 
And what we're actually doing is we're not educating our clients well enough because in the back of our minds, we think that we're king shit. Like we're like, you know, oh, I'm going to go to Rhea to, so she's going to, to fix me. People come to you and ask them, ask you to fix them. Then you failed in my eyes as a healthcare professional. And to your analogy, my analogy is, well, I'm giving you the torch and and I'm going to teach you how to turn that torch on. I've heard about the great resignation recently. Um, that's happening in America and then it's happening here in Australia where people are going, you know what? I kind of have a life outside of work. I have family and friends and the pandemic kind of really when everyone was at home, they're spending more time with their family and they're starting to realize that there is kind of life outside of their workplace. And yeah, that idea of workism is for me, if I was to lose my job today, I'd be like, cool, I have a hundred million other things that I can do that's not associated to rehab or my work. I feel like people don't have that. So we're turning to employees and employers, sorry, employers particularly, to kind of look after our health. Now that's really opposite. I mean, I'm I'm playing devil's advocate here because I think fundamentally, yes, employers have the opportunity to look after their employees' health and they have a responsibility to do that. But I think the responsibility lies in allowing their employees to become a full stack human, to be able to explore all the other things that make them a person. A billion percent. And, you know, in regards to, to, to that, I think it comes, to, comes together nicely, doesn't it? Because when I say the employer responsibility, I'm not necessarily saying fund a health and wellness program that gives people cheap gym memberships or whatever. Maybe it is that. Maybe it's the wellness days. Maybe it's the flexi leave. Maybe it's the remote working environment. Maybe it's the, you know, there's lots of employers now that are introducing really cool, what seem like really far-fetched concepts, but, you know, about um, take your own leave and blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't work in all workplaces because there's certain instances where people have got to be on the clock and, you know, present and and all that sort of stuff. But just that flexibility for for me in in, in my roles, and this is something I've always tried to do with colleagues and peers and team members, is is, is working an outcome, not working a time. And and that is a major, Mm -hmm. major, major shift in in the way that we we do business in Australia sometimes, and particularly in certain industry, we're we're quite behind in that concept there's some really amazing sort of couple of decades worth of cool stuff that's been happening in southeast asia and what have you where they have a completely different way of working but in australia often whatever our role is blue collar white collar we work to time and if we can shift that mindset and work to output and work to value Mm -hmm. and we can change what we're doing then 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 that's surely so much better because if i can start a friday and think I'm not going to work 8.30 till 5 because that's what I'm required to do. I want to work to finish my podcast with Rhea, finalise that service proposition and, and tie off that you know report. And if it's 10.30 or quarter past 5, then it's I'm done. It sounds easy, but it's a, it's a massive mindset shift. So when I touched on employers doing more, it's not necessarily investing money and time and resources on initiatives, although I think that is a good idea and I will say that, but maybe it is that. Maybe it's freeing up the time. Maybe it's freeing up the ability for people to, um, you know, prioritize and um, and live a, a more complete life. Yeah, we are just trying. We're just sort of throwing a whole bunch of stuff out there to get people thinking. Like, but just think about it. That's all we're asking. And a hundred percent. I no one has the answers. I goodness me, I don't have. <laughs> I, I think one, one thing I would say on that though, for, for mine, and, and this is where it where it has to be on point. It can't be prescriptive. Otherwise, you lose the impact. So mm-hmm. you know, with employers, and we're talking about employers, you've got to get to a position where they're able to educate and, and and have their team members believe that it's a safe space to practice that behavior or to shift that mindset or that way of working or whatever. It can't be prescriptive. So I've been a part of organizations where they've done things like, it, it almost seems tokenistic because they go, so we're going to turn the server off between 7 p.m. and 6 a.m. because people were emailing at 11 o'clock at night. And they said, that's a really unhealthy yeah. work-life balance. We're going to turn emails mm-hmm. off. But for mine, that's so, so, so backwards because, and I'm going to be really controversial here, but that doesn't achieve the impact at all because you haven't taught the skill you've just prescribed you haven't changed the mindset you haven't changed yeah. the you've just prescribed and for some people that might work because some people might sleep a little differently whatever and they might want to you know take their kids to, to footy at three o'clock in the afternoon have dinner yeah. with the kids give the kids a bath and then log back on and do a couple of um i put out a post really recently on linkedin about trying to um curate a person's job for that personality Look, it's midday now and I'm just waking up. 
Like I try to do anything before 9am in the morning. I Like no chance in, in holy hell. So if someone turned something off at seven o'clock, I would actually be more stressed out thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to change the way that I work. And you've just walked it into a perfect example because I do my best, best work between 5am and 9am. And that's when I do my best and most productive work. So you take it back to the concept. Guys, mm-hmm. we don't want you working excessively so that it impacts on X, Y, Z. We want you to work to achieve these outputs. And we've given yeah. you rational and reasonable workflow such that logistically that's achievable how you do that is up to you and I know it's easier said than done but that's empowering I I speak to somebody in in another episode of this podcast about emergence it's almost experimenting you and I are scientists so it's kind of like well we have enough hypotheses that if we do x y and z um, we might get this outcome but it's emergent so it might not work out it might work out I think what what I'm asking people to do is to try just try and if you fuck it up at least you know that's one less thing you know you're sort of one step closer to what works for your business or your self or your health or whatever it is just Uh, try we're so scared of failing like a billion percent i think um you know i talked to before about my um obsession with with concepts one one that i absolutely love and i'll I'll never let it go is is knowledge translation and that's about Mm -hmm. right information to the right people at the right time in a way in which they can use it that's meaningful for them and i think that's really important there's all these concepts out there about what's worked for people oh you know turning off the emails doing this worked for me oh logging on in the morning and doing this worked for me or turning this screen off and doing it blah, blah 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 worked for me but that might not work for, for me. What yeah. you do, you might do this stuff and you might have a major breakthrough and go, oh my goodness, I am the happiest, healthiest, most productive mm-hmm. I've ever been. And then I may do the very same thing and it might have worked perfectly for you and it might be a disaster for me. So it is about becoming informed. Knowledge is, is power. Yeah. It's about throwing yourself out there and listening and reading and hearing and talking and picking up bits and going, shit, that's interesting. I might apply a little bit of that. And then guess what? It's trial and error and being comfortable with the fact that it may not work. And if it doesn't work. It It doesn't work. It didn't work. Oops. Like, okay, cool. Like we move on. And I think this is where I'm really big on asking businesses to create those spaces for their people to imagine and explore and experiment and to fail because you're only going to be able to do those things if you allow your people to play. We spoke about sort of you obsessing over a couple of things, but give us a scoop right now on someone who's rocking your world. Like, what are you really into? I spoke, I'm really into workism at the moment. Um, Like, is there somebody that, that you're really into and you're just fanboying over? It's a really good question. You've got me stumped. Yeah, I spend a lot of time um, reading. I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts mm-hmm. and I try and get a really, really healthy variety and of different walks of life. And I try and get a balance between what my cognitive bandwidth can cope with. Mm-hmm. So I don't listen to science heavy or theory heavy stuff all the time. It's, um, it's it, I, I find that overbearing. So try this then, John. What is the podcast that you're listening to at the moment where you're just like brain switch off okay this is what i'm listening to yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna share one that's absolutely um amazing at the moment i've got two i've got two that are just (laughs) i I, I like things that are informed but i don't just like heavy stuff all the time so i'm a massive um soccer fan and this is going to be a bit left of center but it's actually really really cool um there's a soccer player who was around in the in in the 90s called ian wright he's an english guy played for a a club called arsenal he released a podcast called everyday people and Mm -hmm. it is fucking amazing it is it oh my goodness i get goosebumps talking about it <laughs> it's so powerful it's humanistic it's about resiliency god goodness me it's about resiliency but he finds these people who are going through walks of everyday life who've had a journey who faced trauma who faced illness who faced challenging circumstances oh my goodness it's so interesting he interviews this um refugee who was um, living in the greenfeld tower um you know the the towers that that down in London and listening to that podcast, I am often in tears in the car. And that's a big thing for me to say because I don't I don't tear off that is um it is ferociously interesting from a resiliency aspect. From a human perspective. And a human perspective. Humans are like really awesome. Like I love humans. And somebody said to me, I said that to them and, and Tane said, Well, you are biased. I'm like, okay, fair, right? But that podcast particularly is just people telling stories and that's why I started this with the hey tell us your story because that's fascinating stories and conversations and I'm going to give you one more on that give me one more go 
This one is also incredible. Um, it's called Absolutely Mental, and it's my favourite <laughs> comedian in the whole world, which is um, who is Ricky Gervais. He's a comedian, and I find him very, very funny, but he's also, he challenges human concepts. He's very, very interested in science and critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And he partners with um, a neuroscientist, Sam Harris, who, who most people know, and Sam is a thunderously intelligent person. And so they start each episode with a question and basically then just have a conversation. And Ricky's approaching it from the position of slightly comedic, but also inquisitive. And Sam's obviously bringing some science to it and they just go about a conversation. So I listened to an episode yesterday and I was backtracking to an earlier episode that I'd missed, but the question is, what is anxiety? So Ricky rings Sam and says, hey, Sam, how you going? Yeah, going well, mate. What's anxiety? And then they just go on this 40-minute conversation (laughs) and it's amazing so um that they're the two podcasts that i'm loving the most at the moment and switch brain off and and my very final question well penultimate but okay what is something that you did that was fun but like intentionally fun but only for you (laughs) oh my goodness this question why have you why have we gone so seamlessly and then you've given me (laughs) Two absolutely thunderously difficult questions. Um, Because, like, we've gone from, like, heavy cognitive uh, podcast bits to just, hey, let's just go this this way. This is people are going to go, oh, man, this guy. Who um, cares about people? It's about you. This this isn't fun, but... uh, To me, it was fun. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I think this is a really bad answer, but um, I'm always looking for diversity in my exercise and my training, and particularly <laughs> over um, recent times, I've had to sort of think outside the box. Yeah. Um, I was introduced to something really cool, which is called blood flow restriction training or occlusion training, which um, did a bit of reading on it, and I, I invested um, in the paraphernalia required for, for, for proper blood flow restriction training, and I have just become compulsed with it. And my... Wife thinks I'm the weirdest guy in the world because I literally um, put these things on and, and work towards a percentage of blood flow occlusion, and I train like a maniac for 25 minutes, <laughs> and uh, and it's it's bizarre. There's a lot of really, it's not anecdote. There's a lot of really strong evidence about it, and it's becoming more and more prevalent in the rehab space. But yeah, I've really I've really enjoyed it. So I know that's a really bad. So answer, so, so wait, what you're telling me is that for fun. You yes. restrict your blood yes. flow yes. while you train yes. like an absolute animal. Basically, yes. <laughs> but I just love exercise and training, but you know, looking for something a little different. But it really, really challenges you, you know. But I've just loved this type of training. So for people <laughs> that don't know, looking at blood flow restriction training. Where can where can we find you? I mean, if somebody wants to find you, John, where is the best place to look? Do you want to do some plugs for us on any businesses, <laughs> companies, you as a person? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a LinkedIn uh, fiend. So please, please look for me on LinkedIn, John Mellors. I'm happy to connect with anybody and the whole discussion around anything. I've recently started working for a wonderful business called The Change Room, where we're trying to achieve great things and go on a journey to be able to help as many people as possible with all of those salutogenic and front thinking, proactive, preventative wellness concepts. And, you know, we've got a big, big road ahead of us, but it's an exciting one and it's one that I'm passionate about. So I can be reached there as well. We've got a, a website, thechangeroom.info. And yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn and have a yarn and I love conversation. That is awesome. Well, John, thank you so much. I always really like talking to you um, and we, you and I will continue the conversation, I'm sure, after I stop hitting record. Um, but again, thank you so much for coming on to the Intelligent Rebellion podcast. Thanks for having me, Ria. See ya. Thanks, mate. The Intelligent Rebellion podcast is a Three Sticks production. It is produced, written and hosted by me, Ria Mercado. Will is the emperor of sound, mixing and editing and is the talent behind all our original music. This episode is dedicated to all our listeners who let me share this whole new world with you.